Tuesday, April 3rd, my name is Mola Shah Sawari. Welcome to Global Beat, the radio show of the students of the Institute on Globalization and the Human Condition at McMaster University. Our topic today is the Occupy Movement. Since September 2011, a number of chapters have emerged from the Occupy Wall Street, a movement against the actions of Wall Street bankers. These chapters follow the same structure of decentralized democratic and consensus-based decision-making processes while occupying public spaces. In November, a group of students started Occupy McMaster University, which has now become the longest-running Occupy movement at a Canadian university. First in our Around the Globe segment, we have Mark Burgess interviewing Dr. Susie O'Brien, Professor of English and Cultural Studies and Director of the Cultural Studies and Critical Theory MA program at McMaster University. In her recent paper, she discusses the idea of occupying time. Second, in our Looking Local, Khawla Benghazi will discuss Occupy McMaster with Gent Lukai, a graduate student and an occupier. Finally, in our hot topic, we will hear from Dr. Carl Stefan Theodore Anderson, a full-time occupier at McMaster. Dr. Cole is a Bertrand Russell scholar and was recently featured in The Silhouette. Around the globe. Today we have Professor Susie O'Brien from McMaster's Department of English and Cultural Studies to talk about her paper called Occupying Time. Dr. O'Brien, welcome to Global Beat Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In your paper, you raise the idea of public time. Uh, Can you explain what you mean by public time and how you think Occupy creates the possibility for it? Yeah, the idea comes from Cornelius Castoriadis, I mean, I'll I'll tell you the definition, which is kind of opaque, and then try and say how I'm using it. He says that public time is the emergence of a dimension where the collectivity can inspect its own past as the result of its own actions, and where an indeterminate future opens up as a domain for its activities. So public time... Is, is a kind of a framework for action that's defined by a collectively determined idea of past, present, and future, and also how those things are related to one another. So instead of understanding our actions or like what's possible or what, what we value in relation to like some official version of history or an unquestioned idea of progress, like the inevitability of capitalism, that kind of backdrop itself becomes a matter of debate. So what we think of as the past gets formed and, and also reformed by critical history, by, say, public memory projects. And those memories, like different contested memories, can help us to like imagine the future in, in different ways. So they set a different foundation for the present and the future a kind of key element of public time is that it mingles together a lot of different kinds of temporalities. So 
there's sort of just the dominant time of the social, like the time that we all agree on, which is like, say, clock time. And that, that holds society together in important ways. But then it clashes, I think, with our individual time perspectives, which might vary depending on like age, gender, class, and, and culture. And so I think time in this idea, it's not like a smooth, singular thing, but it's contradictory and, and sort of messy. And that's a challenge of public time for sure. But I think Castori, of course, Castoriadis argues, and I think it's true that it's preconditioned for any kind of democratically imagined future. Okay. And how do you think the Occupy movement uh, is contributing to this, to this messiness? Uh, well, I guess even by virtue of having a bunch of bodies collected and trying through processes of participatory democracy to kind of make collective decisions. And they're just sort of, they're, they're actually going through the motions of producing a, a public time. I think, too, by virtue of their connection with earlier social movements. So one kind of temporal framework that you could look at the movement through would be that it's a continuation of struggles throughout history of disenfranchised people, so in, in different places. If you look at the movement through that kind of temporal lens, it means something different. And so I think, though the media has, has viewed the movement through just a kind of a self-evident present time perspective, like with conventional ideas of progress and history, that it might be more productive to look at it through this lens of different kind of contested temporalities, both different kind of histories and like different individual perspectives trying to come together to imagine a different future. Okay, I'm going to read a passage from your paper uh, about the movement's slowness. You write, it's certainly possible to look at the Occupy movement in terms of a slowing down, both in the sense of a literal obstruction of the arteries of the financial district and a kind of grit in the machinery of the news cycle, whose simultaneous persistence and unpredictability couldn't be assimilated to the predictable volatility of the business climate. Can movements be successful if they play by different rules or within different temporalities from the mainstream media, whose news cycle really only seems to be in the habit of accelerating? Yes. I think there's a risk in obviously like not being hot anymore. But I think there's also a way that the Occupy movement, by virtue of its kind of persistence and also its kind of unpredictability, like it keeps sort of fragmenting and then reforming in different places, that it stays in the public view. And there might be a sense in which because the media can't ignore the presence of these tent cities all over the place, but they also have to satisfy the media imperative to keep making it new, that they actually have to talk about the movement in different ways. And so they have to like make new connections, maybe think about how the movement's working historically. Like They have to keep dealing with it and then redealing with it and, and kind of articulating it in different ways. And that's a positive thing. And then, I mean, there's also the danger that it will just get assimilated into the normal news cycle. And when inevitably it sort of disintegrates a little bit or a certain site is dismantled, then it just gets read as, well, that movement's over. But I think even just like simply by virtue of its ongoing 
and kind of it doesn't have a, a clear spatial or temporal boundaries, that it, it, it messes with the media's usual way of dealing with protests, I think. Yeah, in the paper, you, you cite a couple examples of this kind of awkwardness of protesters being interviewed and, and trying to fit their stories into this narrative. Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, well, it, it was actually Wendy Brown who pointed out that nearly every interview with a protester begins and what brought you here? And the idea being that you can only make sense of the movement by virtue of individual protesters' life stories and kind of a direct translation of their uh, life narratives into their decision to become protesters. So what she was suggesting the media doesn't seem to have the capacity to do is to understand this as a collective movement and that participation might not be like just the easy translation of somebody's own life circumstances into demands, which I think is just a common way of reading the movement, that it's just a bunch of disgruntled people making demands, but that the media doesn't seem to have ways to talk about what it might mean for a collective to point to a, a collective problem and that you can't just reduce that to the sum total of a bunch of individuals' life stories. Yeah, it's sort of connected to that. You also talk about disruption caused by introducing corporeality into the architecture of Wall Street. You write, and I quote, Wall Street represents the pinnacle of globalization as post-historical process defined by frictionless flow of information, disembeddedness of time and space. By contrast, the settlement in Zuccotti Park confounds the time of speculation, speed, and strategy with the inefficiency of mortality. Can you tell us a bit what you mean by this inefficiency of mortality and, and how it can be disruptive or, or used as a form of protest? Yeah, well, I, I guess the idea that Wall Street represents sort of the fantasy of this pure frictionless mobility. That's what finance is. So the slowness of material things is kind of transcended because money moves electronically, it moves virtually. And so on the simplest level, the presence of bodies in, in Wall Street with their awkward physicality, it's just a sort of a jarring contrast of beads and of, I don't know, ideas uh, of movement and freedom. And I, I think it's complicated by the fact that with all of those bodies living close together for a period of time and as fall turned to winter, the fragility of those bodies and, and the public health issues, which were how their fragility or their vulnerability came into public awareness, that whether strategically or kind of altruistically, city officials became concerned about protesters' health and just the public health implications of people living so close together. So things like what to do about toilet, problems of exposure, of like the communication of respiratory diseases. Like I think there was something called Zuccotti cough that infected protesters. It drew attention to a more general public health crisis because a lot of commentators and a lot of protesters pointed to the fact that there were communities suffering from the same kind of precarious health right beside the protest sites who were not, like it wasn't by choice that they were living in those conditions, but that they lacked public health resources. So it came out in the media in kind of an ambivalent way. In general, I think the media was not, say, when 
homeless or mentally ill people started to drift into some of the protest camps, which they did, the occupiers themselves tended to make room for them. Like they acknowledged that it was a bit of a dilemma that they already had stretched resources and that the people who started to drift into the Occupy sites, maybe just looking for free food. They didn't necessarily share their political message, but they were, for the most part, I think, accommodated. But the media, as far as I could tell, had trouble dealing with this. They ended up saying kind of absurd things about how the presence of these really vulnerable people in some ways invalidated the message of the Occupy movement. So in some cases, reporters said, oh, you know, these camps have become magnets for undesirables uh, and they should be shut down. And I guess why that's absurd is that one of the whole purposes of the movement was to draw attention to vulnerability and problems, particularly in the U.S., of a lack of access to health care and, I mean, in, in Canada as well, of, of adequate housing and things like that. So however the media handled it, and I think mostly from what I saw, they handled it badly and not particularly sort of critically or, or thoughtfully, the protests really drew attention to just generally human vulnerability and more politically just the inequities in access to health care, housing, those kind of protections. So do you see anything good of or anything good coming of that or is it sort of a missed opportunity to, to help that vulnerable population? I guess it's too soon to tell. I think even by virtue of making visible a problem that is usually kind of ignored, it, it has the potential for something good to come of it. But I'm not aware of any instances where like a municipality said this is this is appalling, we have to address these wider kind of problems because the connections weren't always made between the Occupy movements and, and the surrounding communities. I think there's still a tendency to kind of treat them as these kind of exceptional events. But hopefully, as they persist, if they do persist, it will be harder to, to separate them out and to see the, their concerns as absolutely discontinuous from or separate from the communities where they exist. Another union uh, you talk about that you say is different from for example, the 1960s protest movement is between labor and students and that they're united around a damaged idea of futurity. Can you explain what you mean by this and some of the reasons for it and maybe what effect you think this broader union can have? Yeah, I think labor in general was not very sympathetic to the 1960s counterculture. And I mean, there were some inst instances, I think, of even of violent clashes between students and I think construction unions in, in one instance. And it was partly that some of the causes that the students supported, like withdrawal from Vietnam, were not supported generally by union members who tended to be patriotic and they saw their allegiance more to the soldiers than to the students who they they saw somewhat accurately as as pretty privileged and there was the sense that those students had secure futures so it was fine for them to take time out and and protest the system but that eventually they just find comfortable places within it and i guess that certainty no longer exists for anyone, and particularly not for students who are saddled with huge debt. Back in the 60s, there were these 
narratives, I guess, of nation that sustained, say, the war in Vietnam and of work and success, like the idea that if you worked hard, if you got a good education, then you would be successful, you would have a good future. And I think that that narrative is kind of broken. It doesn't hold anymore. And that, I mean, it's not it's not a good thing, but it does create a kind of a solidarity, the fact that all kinds of people uh, including people who were recently fairly comfortable in the middle class, share this situation of precariousness and uh, really uncertainty about the future. Okay, I want to ask one more question. Um, in your paper, you talk about some commentators like Nicholas Kristof in The Times and Chantal Bear in The Star talking about the need to quantify the movement's gains in some way. Kristof by measuring media attention, Bear by engaging the electoral system. But here was, uh, was Zizek in preserving what he calls a pregnant vacuum from which a new public time could emerge. Can you tell us what this means and why you favor this slower approach? Yeah, I guess I, I am ambivalent about this, and I'm not sort of completely unsympathetic to the desire to see some concrete change happen. And I suppose my ambivalence comes from kind of a tension between pragmatism and like a more kind of uh, idealistic and like, I guess, in a scholarly sense, a more kind of speculative perspective. So pragmatically, it would be good to see some change. But I think I wrote my paper partly out of a sense of frustration that that pragmatic perspective, which I think is kind of conditioned by sort of neoliberal ideas of progress, freedom, change, that that's not just the dominant view, but it's it's kind of the only view. And it seems to me that if you try and measure the success of the movement by criteria that come from the media or the electoral system, that those systems are part of this entrenched inequality that makes them unable to move outside it. So I think we need to acknowledge the insufficiency of those current structures and to try and imagine different ones. So it's not slowness just in the sense that something new can't come about quickly, but that slowness itself as a kind of resistance to kind of dominant technological, ideological, uh, economic current system, that slowness can be sort of an end as well as a, a means, like that it's connected to being human, to like the necessary slowness of democracy, of education, that those are goods in and of themselves that have to be amplified. And whatever change does occur, I think it has to involve really amplifying those things that are kind of getting crushed by the kind of current emphasis on the market. Okay, Dr. O'Brien, we thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Local. In the studio today with us is Gent Lukai. He is a McMaster University student and an active member of the Occupy movement. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the Occupy movement? I'm not so an active member. I mean, it's not like we also have formal membership, but I do spend some time there. Can you tell us um, a little bit about the Occupy movement at McMaster? I can speak about my perception of it, which is like basically a kind of alternative classroom within the university where people talk about different ideas. 
These different ideas are seen as problematic by some people. Some people view them as the lack of a goal and the lack of leadership as being something that is not conceivable. Do you agree? That's one of the major criticism of the Occupy movement in general. Yes, but、uh, I would say that also.、Um, The way that it's organized, its structure, its、uh, lack of hierarchical control—it's also one of its advantages.、Okay. It allows it to be more fluid、uh, as opposed to other networks, and to kind of、uh, join a diverse set of ideas and diverse set of people who normally would not cooperate with each other. So, how effective is it with the lack of hierarchy? Well, speaking about these、uh, networks in general,、uh, there are some people who argue that they are.、Uh, That they are better than hierarchical networks, which we see a lot in、uh, today's society. Whether it's the state, the military, the way that a corporation is is run,、uh, you have like a centralized、uh, model of、uh, command and control. This is kind of the opposite of that, meaning in a way that it's kind of libertarian and、uh, anarchist in nature. Only people who would like to come there do, and、uh, really nobody can kind of impose their rules over、uh, anybody. It's an open space, an open forum, kind of like the internet. Some people may argue that it's what democracy should be. This is kind of in conjunction to anarchism. <laughs> Which one would you say it's more like? I believe it to be a sort of、uh, form of democratic organization, even though it's not hierarchical. I,、uh, I mean, the idea is that usually、uh, hierarchical、uh, organizations are not really democratic in their decision making. But there's also,、uh, like you mentioned, there's also side effects of having a decentralized structure because it's sometimes kind of hard to arrive at decision making and kind of hard to get consensus. While as on the other organizations, it's really true. If you get a small group of inner core of people to believe it, then most likely it will be carried through. The Occupy movement in McMaster has been going. Strong for months now. It's、uh, deemed as the longest occupation of a university, I guess you can say. Do you see the same momentum with other occupation movements? I'm not sure if I can speak about、uh, the Occupy movements in general because there is a lot of them. Most of them somehow relate to the Occupy New York movement, and we could talk about that and how that has run into certain difficulties. And a lot of them will run into certain difficulties or have certain different dynamic, and that's where the local and the global kind of meet. Although they have similar. Ideas they run into different sets of problems. You say that they have similar ideas. What are these ideas? Well, the, these ideas is basically to try and do something about the way that society is. The people who come at Occupy, there's a diverse group of people.、Uh, there's people with different ideas. However, there's some overarching resemblances. So, for example, you might have、uh, environmentalists. You might have, in a way, a certain part of them who are social democrats. The other group who are a little bit more radical, who don't ask just to change the system at the margin, but who are asking for a more of a radical change.、A、I think this.、Maybe? Uh, I would not say a revolution, but I mean, like、uh, sometimes a small thing, like just talking about certain ideas differently, could have quite a powerful impact. Al- although I would not say that a lot of people there would say it's a revolution in itself, because what they do is actually、uh, quite normal with talking about the Occupy McMaster with what goes on in a classroom. There is music which you would hear in music school, and there is conversation about a variety of things. The people who come there are from a wide、um, backgrounds, like interdisciplinary in a way. I think that this interdisciplinarity of members within the Occupy movement is problematic because goals are not being achieved. Rather, everyone wants certain things, but these things are different according to the person's race, gender, class.、Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think those are the the ideas of the Occupy movement in general. There there is broad ideas within it. However, I think within local context, there there is also a locality of ideas that comes. Speaking about also myself personally, like I would not speak about others or what they believe, but、uh, for the Occupy Occupy movement and McMaster to kind of say that we're going to change how we think of race or how we think of class overall in the world—it's a little bit unrealistic. Local movement sort of. 
fit into local projects, but there is an overarching integration of these local movements. And that's what the idea is, right? Like to connect. So you have hope for the Occupy movement? I have hope for it. I think in, in a way it brings some things which are kind of good. Open dialogue, I believe it's always good. I would like to live in a society where people live like that. It's also like a philosophical way of living. I don't think people should take on things for granted, and I think they should question things. I'm not sure about my hopes about the movement. I don't know how much the movement will have an impact uh, in the future. I don't have a crystal ball, but I can say that in a way it has been effective from my personal experience, right? Like some people might disagree with it. And that's also one of the debates that kind of uh, heightens the issue in itself. So even the critics might contribute to it. So what is Occupy to you? Uh, I'm not sure if it's one thing, really. I'm not sure if I can really define it in that sense. So like, what draws you to the Occupy movement? We go to talk about different things. So I kind of like that. You're also in a classroom, but you're also kind of in a different space. That's the reason why I go. There are some reservations that many have towards the Occupy movement. Yes. So for instance, in terms of the word in itself, Occupy, it's often used in relation to uh, Palestinians who are being occupied by Israeli mm-hmm. forces or Aboriginal people who have been occupied by Western imperialists. But this movement tries to use it in a positive way to bring about change. Do you think that this is problematic? I think you are right in that sense. And a lot of people who have criticism about how the term is, are, is legitimate in that sense. Because the, the Occupy movement, right, you're trying to reclaim something. People believe that power comes from the people, like from the masses. Nowadays, people feel disenchanted. I don't feel like that is happening anymore. What they're doing is kind of, in a way, the, it's the word reoccupying what they believed was before an area of public space that is getting taken away from larger things that are going on in the world. If you were to look at it, um, for example, in the conquest of America or many other like uh, native tribes throughout the world, uh, this was the idea. I mean, accumulation by dispossession, you occupy a certain territory. Without this, we would not have the form of system that we're in today. I believe that uh, basically uh, what's going on in the world, it would be good to have this sort of dissent, although there is problem. Uh, there's some problems with the terms in itself. I would agree with a lot of people uh, from who would kind of uh, look at that, uh, feel that it does not really fit in well because they feel they have been oppressed. Another concern that people have towards the Occupy movement is that in itself it is a capitalist movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree? I would agree in a, to a certain extent of degree, yes. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But I think that in a way, because it tries, it's a, it's a system that, like I said, fits the structure of the internet and that integrates a larger group of people to coordinate their activities. And they try, especially when it comes to the internet, they try to make like informational goods or public goods free. That's why I think also it has uh, had support of like other hacktivist groups. In that sense, it is capitalistic, but a different form of capitalistic. Uh, not capitalistic in a monopolistic sense, as you would, for example, think of the industrial revolution, but also you could think of, of it being capitalist as breaking down monopolies, breaking down monopolies on power and, uh, and bringing down power as much as possible to the mass. Uh, in that sense, that has been the history of capitalism with a breakdown of unions. Uh, so you don't think it's contradictory that they're trying to fight capitalism and new imperialism by using methods of capitalism, such as bringing about large crowds to voice their opinion? Now, against this sort of form of capitalism, which is corporate capitalism, mm-hmm. however, if you were really a traditional traditional liberal in that sense, you would be against monopoly power in the most of in most of every sense. And they are. That's what that's what they're trying to do. This week's hot topic. On the 20th of November, there was the first night that the occupiers slept there, and it was sort of 
formed. At least some students at Mac are interested in the justice, social justice. There are many different voices within the movement. They use it to fulfill the need for students where they could hang out in a more relaxed atmosphere and just be together and hang out and discuss things that concern them. The Occupy movement doesn't have a clear leadership or a clear message except that this uh, consumption society and uh, war-oriented has to stop. It's not by revolution, it's by evolution. Little by little, the uh, rings on the water are going out and reaching more and more people, particularly, first of all, the students here on campus, but it is sending signals to people all over the world that we are really participants in the same story. The Occupy movement is here to stay because there is really no other choice. We got to do something peacefully, just sit down and talk to people to change things. I refuse to participate in the injustices. I refuse to go to Iraq. I refuse to go to Afghanistan. I refuse to do evil. A few people, if they get together, they become strong and can uh, lobby for changes that are absolutely necessary. Otherwise, we're like a ship on a river, not realizing that a couple of miles up river there's a big waterfall and people are dancing and smoking and having fun and not realizing uh, that they're participating in the catastrophe. We have to change things. We have to change the direction. Segments were produced by Mark Burgess and Khala Ben Ghazi, editing and post-production by Mola Shah Sawari, and a special thanks to Dr. Susie O'Brien, Kent Lukai, and Dr. Carl Stephen Theodore Anderson, and all of our colleagues at the Institute on Globalization and the Human Condition. I'm Mola Shah Sawari. Thanks for listening. Please remember to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash globalbeatcfmu and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash globalbeat underline cfmu. See you next Tuesday morning on Global Beat.